Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your fortnightly delve into the world of EBM. In this podcast, we talk about what's been going on, what new evidence has been generated, um, especially around COVID. But actually in this one, uh, we're going to be focusing on some other things. That scary feeling of encountering sudden weight loss in a patient. Um, And last week, we mentioned the Cumberland Report. And this week we're talking about that and a register of conflicts of interest. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ. And as always, I'm joined by Helen MacDonald, resting GP and UK research editor. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. And Carl Hennigan, editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine Journal and professor of EBM at Oxford. Hi, Carl. Hi, Duncan. As I said, this week we are not focusing on COVID. It's a refreshing change, but we needed to have a little bit in there. Um, and Carl, I was going to ask you, uh, I'm up visiting my parents in Scotland and uh, the closest city, Aberdeen, is in local lockdown. And I thought Carl's probably got something to say on lockdowns in general at the moment. Criteria um, for lockdowns. Yeah, exactly. How do they decide uh, what to what to when to lock down? Well, look, this has been in the news this week in England as well because there have been major issues in areas like Oldham and now there's alerts in Birmingham, Manchester because they're talking about increasing restrictions. And what we've seen is there's a a line in the sand which is 50 cases per 100,000 is what they call the red alert bracket sort of line where you go, you now are in going to go into measures. And This is an important issue. And if you look at somewhere like Oldham, what's happened is cases went up to around about 110 per 100,000. One of the reasons for that is they started testing more, going into the area, knocking on doors and picked up more cases. And particularly somewhere like Oldham in a deprived area, they've got a multi-ethnic population and many people live in multi-occupation houses. Importantly, though, is to know in Oldham, the data's come down over the next week or two, and it's now down to about 70 cases per 100,000, but it's still above that line. But I have problems with this line, because if you go into Oldham and look at what's happening in the hospitals, there is virtually nobody with COVID in the hospitals. There is nobody dying and nobody in the intensive care units. So the impact of the disease is right now minimal. And what we're seeing is lots of people with asymptomatic disease or what I call weak positives being picked up. What that should be is an alert to increase measures for communicating about the risks and staying alert and being vigilant. But it's important when you talk about lockdown measures that it should be tied to symptomatic disease and importantly its impact on the healthcare services. Our admissions going up, our 999 calls going up. If you've got that, that's how you should look at what you use for restrictive measures to slow down the spread of the virus but this so who's, 50 who's defined this fifty thousand and and what yeah what so, actions come from it yeah so that's a really important question because i'm not quite sure where's it come out of has it come out of the chief medical officer has it come out of public health england or this new joint biosecurity center nobody's owning up to own this measure and second is it's not based on evidence and it's certainly not based on experience because what we know in routine clinical practices there is a measure for epidemics 
and that measure is 400 per 100,000 people consulting in primary care. When that happens, every year we get a letter from the Chief Medical Officer to tell us that we're at ap- epidemic levels, and that's with all respiratory pathogens that cause an influenza-like illness and we can use things like Tamiflu and we won't go there in terms of that impact <laughs> but we we get that in the letter but it's about this is the point when we know we have a problem in the health system so that measure has been abandoned and remember that's consulting that's symptomatic people it's not asymptomatic people and I think that's crucial. Is that because people don't have asymptomatic influenza? Oh, there are huge gaps in our knowledge here because one of the things is in seasonal pathogens is you have to understand where do these viruses go. Well, they go to two places. They go from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere. But what we see is what's happening with the coronaviruses. They tend to transmit at at what we call a weak positive. People have very low viral loads at the moment. That's probably why they're not getting unwell. And that's one of the issues is how do they survive through the summer? And to be honest with you, influenza is still circulating at a very low level. All of the other pathogens are circulating at a low level. And as we go back into the winter, where we are now, we will see consultations in primary care triple or quadruple by the time we get to December. And that's important why we don't panic now. Because if we're locking down at these levels, by the time we get to November, December, we're going to be in a state of panic. And we're taking and some other actions as well, aren't we? That I, It's impossible not to notice the, the news on quarantines happening. Do you think this is a ripple or a second wave or a kind of continuation of a, of a grumbling level of coronavirus? <laughs> what, I can't remember how yeah. many other things we outcomes we considered probable when we looked at second waves in an episode a few weeks ago. I mean, I've never had a single event, which is the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918, dominate our thinking for over 100 years. And it's only ever really been that one uh, area where you can say there was predominantly a second wave that led to much more disease. And most of the second wave theory is related around influenza. It is not related in any way such to coronaviruses. And that says what happened is in influenza is you get an initial outbreak, you get the summer period which dampens it down, and then you get a second wave where it takes off. I think there's so much uncertainty here with coronaviruses, particularly how they operate in which environment. And they tend to be late seasonal effects, not early. So I would have a lot of uncertainty and not pin there's a second wave going to happen and it's a fait accompli. And actually what we're seeing is, as some areas are locked down hard and open up, potentially what's happening is their pool of susceptible people is far greater. That's why in places like London now, people are scratching their head and going, why is it not taking off in London? Because that's the busiest city in England. It's a busy city in UK and people really are interacting there, but it's not taking off. But some areas where they weren't hard hit might find they have spikes in cases. But if they do that this time of year, it should actually not lead to the impact of disease that we saw in March, April. Interesting. I feel like there are lots of questions that obviously we still need to answer for coronavirus. And perhaps one thing that we should do is some basic immunology, like what's actually this interaction that uh, that we could look at in the future. And um, maybe we should, yeah, maybe you should listen out for that. Um, Can I on, say uh, one thing things. I'm going to do, which I'd like other people to do? 
I've accepted my first talk in a state school. I'm going back into schools next autumn and I'm going to do talks about the epidemiology of COVID, what it means to you and your risks. And I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to put a piece out. And if it's within an hour of Oxford, I'll come to a state school and do a talk for you on this issue. And one important issue, I will be talking without a mask to school children. Oh well. I'd love if any teachers want to take you up on that, stick it behind the screen, perhaps. Very quickly on from there, Duncan. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, Carl, I never expected you to uh, embrace the woo, but um, you have published recently an article about honey for. respiratory infections is this uh going back to folkloric this treatment? is the kind of stuff you usually trash carl exactly. but you've put it in your journal no look hold on so <laughs> I, I didn't publish it our journal published it it's done by a team from oxford so i'm completely conflicted and it's also done what i like about it it was led by a medical student who basically looked at the effectiveness of honey for symptomatic relief in upper respiratory tract infections. Within the review, they found 14 studies, and what they said is the overall risk of bias within them studies is moderate, but compared to usual care, honey was superior for the improvements of symptoms of upper respiratory tract infections. Now, what I am a fan of is people doing the trials and people doing the systematic reviews. And the problem is, in many of these areas... There isn't the commercial incentives to do the research, but we need an explosion of this type of research because it really helps us understand if I'm going to give advice, I can now inform that with here's some evidence that suggests your symptoms will be improved. The quality of the evidence is moderate and this is an important finding because it allows you to do something different in terms of advice. Now, One of the key issues is what we need is more research in this type of arena because I think this stuff is important and it's important to be informed. So was there a lot of research uh, on honey that made it into that systematic review? So uh, there were 14 studies in the analysis and nine of them were done in paediatrics only. There was a diversity of the usual care interventions but nine studies used pure honey to look at the effects. So I think, you know, I would say... You probably, if you really wanted to understand the true estimate, we need a larger scale study. But given the harms are low and what you're looking for a symptomatic effect is you can use this evidence on an individual basis to say, if I take some honey, does it actually help me symptomatically? And I think that's a worthwhile based on what this evidence shows. What's the dose, Carl? Well, <laughs> a, sp- a spread on your toast or you've got to drink a whole thing? So one of the things is uh, there was insufficient evidence to explore the different doses. So if it was me, I'm going to start with a teaspoon and see how that goes. <laughs> and if it doesn't work for my symptoms, it'll probably be distract me because I actually quite like honey. Well, it's very delicious. Did they talk about risks there? Any dangers of, I don't know, attracting bears? Wasps at this time of year. Yeah, true. So what they say about about it within the conclusion is it's cheap, it's easy to access, and it has limited harms. Therefore, based on that information, I think it's 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 helpful advice. If somebody said to me, "Should I take honey?" I would go, "Yeah, look, there's moderate evidence, and actually try it, and if you have a symptomatic effect, but it'll taste good." You convinced me, Carl. I don't much like food studies, but 
I enjoyed that summary. Well, I think we need to see more of these types of studies, don't we? Definitely. So, we've just been talking about um, food, and uh, Helen, a bit of a swerve towards your um, research paper this week. You've been looking at uh, prioritising primary care patients with unexpected weight loss for cancer investigations. I have. I guess the clinical issue here is when does unexplained weight loss warrant investigation in primary care? Um, And that's clearly phrased as as a clinical question and not a research one. And it's a really tricky symptom, unexplained weight loss, for clinicians to hear about. And I think it's one of those things that immediately makes you quite nervous and quite um, concerned about the possibility of cancer even if you know that that's very rare it's sort of lodged in your mind but I think for for patients and the public compared to other symptoms that might suggest cancer I have a sense that people are less aware of this as a potential cancer symptom compared to for example cough or change in um, bowel habit um, Mm. and some of the other campaigns that we've seen and I think part of the problem is that weight loss is quite non-specific. It can be related to lots of different types of cancers um, in different places in your body, different stages of the disease. And everything about it seems really tricky. The conversation around gauging weight loss, I think, can be quite difficult. People may be unsure what their normal weight is, so sort of how much weight they have actually lost over what kind of time period, thinking about are there other symptoms mixed into it is there other stuff going on in their life um which might explain why they've lost weight and i guess some people might be quite happy to have lost a bit of weight i mean a lot of people exist in a state of trying to lose a bit of weight most of the time and then i think as a clinician in your mind obviously you don't want to miss cancer but there's this this balance of not wanting to over investigate people um, and not wanting to under investigate people because you don't want to miss cancer but there isn't really a simple or single test if you do have unexplained weight loss that's going to quickly tell you if you do have um, cancer and a lot of the options for testing are then quite invasive um, things like colonoscopy for example or involve radiation like having a CT scan or something like that and it's and it's an enormous emotional burden isn't it thinking you're under investigation to to see if you've got cancer so I was quite interested to spot this big diagnostic accuracy study using routine data looking at how well unexplained weight loss predicts cancer according to some patient demographics so for example how old they are their gender um their background um smoking and other clinical features so the signs that they might have the symptoms that they might have and basic kind of blood tests that you might order in primary care how they relate to them and this study was set in uk primary care and uses cprd which is the clinical practice research data link electronic health records and linked those data with National Cancer Registration and Analysis Service data. And I thought they'd taken a really practical approach, really coming at this from a clinical standpoint rather than what I call a researchy approach to things, <laughs> which maybe makes less sense in real life. And I spoke with the paper's lead author, Brian Nicholson, who's an NIHR clinical lecturer at the Nuffield Department of Primary Care in Oxford. He's also a GP and I happen to have trained with him. So I I do know him a little bit as well. Um, So it was nice to give him a call and um, 
congratulate him on having his paper published, but also ask him a few questions about it. So our, our study set out to identify which other symptoms or um, signs or, or test results a GP could use in a person with weight loss to, to identify that, that that patient would warrant further investigation for cancer. And as well as being a tricky clinical situation, as I read your paper, it also sounded quite frankly, like it was a bit of a nightmare to design this study. There were there were lots of limitations, lots of kind of challenges as I was reading down your methods section that really made this quite challenging. Tell us about some of the key things people should know. So the, the first thing that we, we really wanted to do is we wanted to use weight measurements as the way to define weight loss in this study. But we've done some previous work which shows just how infrequently weight is measured uh, or weight is recorded in the general practice electronic health record. So that we couldn't use weight measurements to define weight loss, so we used weight loss coding. So we know there's some, some bias in the way codes are put in the notes, but we did some research to validate which codes were most confidently representing unexpected weight loss. The next thing is identifying situations where the weight loss was unexpected rather than just weight loss was noted. So we excluded people who'd had medications to help with weight loss or had had surgery, bariatric surgery in the time before the beginning of the study. And we also wanted to identify patients who had a first, a first cancer diagnosis. So we excluded people with past cancer. And what were the most important things that you found? The first important finding um, relates to identifying which which types of symptoms, signs or blood test results would increase the risk of a cancer diagnosis in someone with weight loss. And so this sort of information can help develop guidelines. So, so for example, we've looked at producing uh, the sorts of rules that you'd see in, um, in the NICE guidelines. So, for example, for a, a man who's over 60, with weight loss, the other symptoms, um, things like um, having difficulty swallowing or coughing up blood or having non-cardiac type chest pain um, or raised inflammatory markers, and they, they were all found to be very predictive of cancer in a man over 60. And the, the second thing that we found, which is important in terms of how cancer pathways are designed, is that when a symptom is found in a person with weight loss, for example, um, coughing up blood, for example, which is a symptom that's very closely linked with lung cancer, or, or let's say abdominal pain, which is linked with cancers of the uh, upper GI tract, like pancreatic cancer. Then unlike when these symptoms appear on their own and they're linked with, a, with one specific type of cancer, when they occur with weight loss, they, they can be linked with a really broad range of cancer types. So it shows how, how broad the investigations may need to be to identify cancer in somebody with weight loss. Can you give us an example of that? For example, in, in men or women with weight loss over the age of 60, they presented with abdominal pain, um, anemia, appetite loss, clinical signs on their chest or some abnormal blood tests, um, some abnormal liver function tests or, or, or blood count then the, these could all qualify for a referral for a cancer investigation. Hmm. And potentially a slightly different clinic, uh, a less maybe organ-focused approach to investigating such people would be advantageous. 
Yeah, absolutely. And th- there's been a lot of work done in the UK um, over the past few years to look at that very sort of model, a kind of broad, broad investigation for non-specific symptoms. So the the ACE program, which ran nation- national pilots across five or six different centres, looked at designing pathways to do just that, to, to look at multidisciplinary clinics to uh, investigate across a broad range of cancer sites. So really, our, our research supports um, that approach um, to investigation. And you seem to have approached this in quite a practical way, in, in a way like you wanted to really speak to guideline or policy makers or people designing cancer pathways. What 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 are the main things you'd like them to consider? The first motivation here was to try and do a piece of research that represents what GPs do in the clinic. We know this is part of the clinical process. We know the sorts of tests that GPs might use in, in primary care to get a feel for whether there's an increased risk or not. So we, we, we decided to look at very, very simple, commonly used blood tests in, in primary care. So we wanted to make something that was practically relevant and could be used in primary care straight away. So no, no fancy tests and, you know, nothing that's out, out of the ordinary to the, to the jobbing GP. And so for that reason, we thought, you know, our findings would have, could have immediate, immediate impact in terms of being appropriate for, for use in, in clinical guidelines on the ground. enjoyed talking to Brian about this paper car because it just felt so primary care and practical focus what did you think of it yeah the thing that came to my mind was what we call the red flags in the consultation and when you have a red flag it indicates a need for investigation or further referral because there's something you find in the history or the examination that are tied to serious pathology and, and, and when you get that, it sort of hits you and you go, right, here's something. So unexplained weight loss is a red flag. What this is doing is saying, actually, in certain age groups, it might be less of a red flag. But in male smokers, it really should be a concern where you, the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, lung cancer in that type of person. And that means, based on that, I am going to investigate. And I think it's a really interesting aspect of the consultation about how we think when sometimes we go there's a little bit of information the risk is low but the seriousness is so high i am going to act to proceed with further investigations and um brian's a gp do you think that's made a difference to the the study design now i'm not sure you could have done it without being a gp (laughs) there's so much isn't there about how those consultations are framed what you find when you start to dig into the notes the kind of tests that are available to gps to order i think it would have been really challenging to do this project without having a gp on board i think what it shows is and i know brian is and i hope he doesn't disagree is that he has been in practice and had this issue occur reflects his uncertainty and he set out to reduce that by doing this research i think this is one step on a path to lots of research in cancer that's needed in primary care where the prevalence is low And it's very difficult to do this research, but it's important because we could end up in a situation where we huge over-investigation because nobody's really quite clear about what many of these features mean in an evidence-based way. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that, especially given, you know, the over-diagnosis-y kind of hat that the BMJ often wears to... um 
to see it play out in this way. So that paper, as I said at the beginning, um, prioritizing primary care patients with unexpected weight loss for cancer investigation uh, is available now on bmj.com. Right, last week um, we mentioned the Cumberledge Review, the Independent Medicine and Medical Devices Safety Review, and that we would be coming back to it. And lo and behold, as if like magic, um, Carl and Helen, you have written an editorial kind of... It's almost uh, like I knew that we were doing that. Yeah, who could have told that was coming? Um, But this is all about the need to register um, doctors' potential conflicts of interest um well interest this is just about declaring interest so one of the recommendations from the report was that there needed to be a mandatory register where doctors declared their interests and i think there's all kinds of reasons why why that's the case primarily from a patient and public perspective Um, It was very clear, I think, in the evidence that they heard, and there's some useful quotes within the report that make it clear that patients and the public expect that if someone's treating you, you should know, um, or it should be available at least, uh, what their interests are. And I, I don't think there's much debate that we do have clear evidence that interests, be they commercial, financial interests or intellectual interests, have biased research and decision making. And in this report, there were three things considered harms from the hormone pregnancy test, primidos, vaginal mesh and sodium valparate in women of childbearing age. And there's there's kind of two sides to what's set out with respect to declaring interest. One is self-declaration. So doctors saying, um, here are my interests in my, in my opinion. Um, and the other is from the other direction with a focus on commercial interests on industry declaring who they have paid. And and listeners may have heard of the US Sunshine Act, which I guess is the one of the more new and higher profile examples of a country who have introduced a system that made it mandatory for uh, industry to declare that. And similar laws do exist elsewhere around the world, but it doesn't exist here in the UK. And I think it's clear that you need both of those sides. You need people to be declaring from their perspective and you also need other parties to be declaring who they're paying or who they're interacting with. And one of the things we wanted to talk about in the editorial is why has it been so hard to reach this point? Um, and, and, and an aspect that we considered was culture and this perhaps unspoken um, idea that doctors are in some way special. So, so the GMC, the General Medical Council, encourage us to be honest and declare your interest. But at the same time, they also seem to hint at the fact that you have somehow the ability to self-manage them. So it says you must not allow any interest you have to affect the way that you prescribe for, treat, refer or commission services for patients. And that seems kind of out of step with what we expect for other human beings. So if you're a judge or an MP and you have an interest, you're expected to be recused and removed from that situation. But there's something about doctors that that means that that doesn't seem to be the case. Anyway, the call here is basically to say that we need to have a mandatory, an annual, a comprehensive declaration of interest without any judgment of their relevance. Um, And for that to be contemporaneous, for it to be up to date, 
but also the need to retrieve historical information. So it needs to be searchable, auditable, easy to find, freely available to anyone that wants to look at it. And then you have the next step, Duncan, which you mentioned, which is that once you have that information, then actually the hard work begins for healthcare providers, guideline committees, employers, journals, patients and the public to actually define what they consider to be a conflict of interest. And then there needs to be discussions around who is suitable to do what type of work and whether you should recuse yourself and put forward someone who does not have that interest. So there have been a- attempts in the in the UK to achieve something like this. So there are voluntary registers, but there is nothing systemic that is mandatory for clinicians. So this or the editorial that we've written is very much around the beginning part of that process, just the declaration part, and only for doctors. So there are many other people other than doctors, other allied healthcare professionals, managers, researchers who are involved in shaping research and and healthcare and and this I would think would also apply to them but our call in the editorial is very much around supporting the um, recommendation of the Cumberledge review that this needs to happen for doctors. Can I just come in within the editorial and I think this is an important point which I just think everybody should think about. Within there we cite that the House of Commons Health Select Committee in 2005 recommended a declaration of interest and that should be maintained by the GMC. 15 years later we're still in a sort of not happened and Baroness Cumberledge review has had to point out the time has come. But let's compare that with what's happened in America. In 2009 the Institute of Medicine put out a conflict of interest in medical research education and practice report very clearly saying more or less the same things that was happening in the Health Select Committee. Within three years in America, there was a Sunshine Act that was legislation that was designed to increase transparency around the financial relationships between physicians, teaching hospitals and manufacturers, mandatory declarations of payments to doctors by industry. And I just think that difference is really quite important and we need to now ask questions. When we get these very clear mandates to government, to act and do something, why has it not happened? And why in other countries around the world? Because in Portugal, Denmark, Australia, Korea, France, they all have now versions of the Sunshine Act. Why are we still sat here in a position where we're saying we're not quite clear why this should happen and we've got this inertia going on? Why do you think we do have it, Carl, though? I mean, we we have this kind of maybe cultural thing, but this is something that, as you say, it's 15 years, it's pervaded through different governments, different leaders. There's a sense for me in this country things seem to get kicked down the road and within a couple of years something new has emerged and then it becomes a less of a priority. And I think this is the same problem with this report. If it's not acted on now and something happens within the next 12, 18 months with expediency, It'll be down in the road and it won't be seen as a priority and it'll sit with the 2005 recommendation. Somehow in different countries, in like America, they seem to have a legislation process that takes recommendations and makes them happen. And I think we need to have that much clearer within our governmental processes when we put these reviews together to say, look, let's act on them. And if we're not going to act, explain why that is the case. So, 
that brings us to the end of talk evidence this week we've been discussing lockdown the use of honey for respiratory tract infections southern weight loss and registers of doctor's interest now if you've got this far as always and you haven't subscribed then you really should do we're on all of the places that you can usually find podcasts if there's something that we've talked about that you disagree with or there's something that you're really interested in us covering then do let us know you can go to bmj.com podcast to find out how to get in touch and obviously carl and helen are also on twitter so slide into their dms to find all of our back catalogue uh, we have put this on our website now it's bmj.com podcast slash talk evidence that's our full back catalogue, all of the COVID and everything else that we've done in the past. So lots about conflicts of interest in there. That's it for this week, but we'll be back in another fortnight. Um, so until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care of that. <laughs>